inner strength and agency over our lives are themes we talk about today. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. In a minute, we'll talk with Amy Edelstein, whose 300-mile journey through the highest valley in the world in Zanskar, India, cultivated within her an inner strength that she has carried with her since. Her book is Adventure in Zanskar, a young woman's solitary journey to reach physical and metaphysical heights. And stay with us for my conversation with Kathleen Stone on her book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. Right now couldn't be a better time to bring you stories of strong, courageous women. With the continued assault on women's rights, let's remind ourselves and each other that progress comes with moving one foot in front of the other. Amidst what at times feels like social and cultural chaos, we have a lot of wisdom around us and within us. People who reflect, analyze, and teach us about taking one step after another. Sometimes we feel ill, sometimes we need to rest, but we always must keep moving in the direction of our ultimate goals, freedom, respect, and equality. Stay with us. It's a novel idea. In 1983, 21-year-old Amy Edelstein trekked alone over 16,000-foot passes for over 300 miles in the Zanskar region of India. She was embraced by the Zanskaris while experiencing a culture that was on the precipice of change. Edelstein's experience transformed her and she has emerged as an educator, the founder and executive director of Inner Strength Education, which teaches teens mindfulness in the under-resourced Philadelphia schools. She is the author of six books, including the one we talk about now. Let's listen to our conversation. Adventure in Sanskar, a young woman's solitary journey to reach physical and metaphysical heights. Amy Edelstein, thank you for joining me today to talk about this lovely book. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Before we go more deeply into into your story, I'd like us to geolocate where Zanskar is on the planet. It's in a remote area that is juxtaposed in an often contested part of the world. So tell us, where this is and just how you decided to travel there at the age of 21. When you look at a map of India, there's a little finger on the top of the country. And Zanskar is a valley nestled in that little outcropping of India. It's geographically part of the Tibetan plateau, but politically it sits within India. And the reason why it's so contested is because On the eastern side, it borders with the Chinese-controlled region of Tibet. On the western side, it was until very recently part of the Jammu Kashmir state, which often has a lot of conflict between local Hindu and Muslim adherents who are often at odds. 
It also borders with Pakistan. And then it's just under Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and parts of Russia-controlled territory. So it has been very isolated, partly because it's ringed by very high mountains, mountains that are taller than 5,300 meters, 17, 18, 20,000 feet. And also geopolitically, because a couple of large powers would like to control that area of the world. It only opened for casual tourists to come visit in 1976. And I was there in 1983 before there were roads and before many people had gone in the way they, they go now. Yes, I understand that now there are roads or at least four-wheel drive roads that can take people in. And I imagine that's really changed how the um, Zanskaris live or at least are perceived by others. Absolutely. I have not been back there since that time. I have been back to North India, but I do have friends who do work in the area. So I'm familiar with just how huge a change has been made in the culture, in part because of the introduction of a monetary economy rather than a trading subsistence economy, and in part because the lure of Western materialist values, what we can consume, hit quite strongly there and led to the erosion of support for the monastic communities there. And that the monastic communities were both where families would get knowledge, both about Buddhist teachings, but also other educational supports, and where their culture was maintained and had been very consistent over hundreds of years, actually thousands of years. Zanskar is the oldest continuously Buddhist valley in the world. It was Buddhist before Tibet became Buddhist. And then it practiced a, a religion called Bon religion, which is also has meditative pathways and speaks about understanding the mind and enlightenment. And then the Tibetan form of Buddhism was really brought into Zanskar sort of in the 13 to 1500s. So the Zanskaris are have their own language, which is similar to Tibetan. They have their own ethnic community, but they look very similar to Tibetans, and they're very close cousins. Now, you were 21 when you decided to take this trek, and it was a solo journey. You were on your own most of that time, yet you managed to secure places to stay and food and drink from people who were strangers, and you were a stranger to them. And you describe a joy and an openness amongst the Sanskari people that was so warm, and they opened up their spaces to you. And it was almost like there was this instantaneous trust between you. And I just would love you to talk about that experience. Because uh, as you said, you were traveling fairly lightly, sold your tent before you went on this journey. That's right. Hospitality is part of their culture. It's, 
It's very remote and the Zanskaris are also travelers and traders. In the wintertime, the rivers freeze, so they go by horseback and they can be gone for three months at a time. Then they travel great distances, they're real explorers. So the custom of opening their homes and extending themselves and, and sharing what they have is part of what they do because that's what's happening for their families when they travel. So it wasn't just because I was Western or unusual. I was really being treated to their lifestyle. And what I found among those people was were, were two things. Was One was there was really a strong equality between the genders in a way that I had never seen anywhere else, where women and men did a lot of the same things side by side. Of course, in the monasteries, they are very patriarchal. There's a real preference for male monks versus female nuns. And when they talk about the enlightened teachers, it generally passes through a male lineage. But in general, um, even though there's a preference for the male monastics, in the families, you just feel a real openness. And so as a woman, it was easy for me to blend in. It was more, I spent time in villages in Hindu and Muslim areas of India as well, in Uttar Pradesh, Himachal Pradesh, and Kashmir. And I was also treated very graciously, but the men would bring me into their circles because I was Western and I was more independent. Whereas in Zanskar, I was just treated like the other women, really. And that to me was, uh, was a pleasant surprise. And I found, I found the women to be really strong and vivacious and bold and delightful. I also was hosted very graciously by Muslim and, and, and Hindu women as well. And they have their own lovely characteristics, but the Zanskari women, I felt a real kinship with. I grew up in the second wave of feminism. So that was the time of women saying anything men could do, women could do. And I had friends in college who were part of the radical feminist community in upstate New York. And it was a little bit hard edged. And what I liked about the women in Zanskar was they were so bold without an edge. And I found that so refreshing. The other thing that I felt and what you're asking is that they, they would host me at the same time they wouldn't impose on me in a really interesting way. They were so deeply sensitive to everyone's need for contemplative space that if I was exhausted, it was almost like they could read me better than I could read myself. And there were some times where I was welcomed, I was, we would eat together, they would read that I just needed rest, I needed time, I needed space, and they were so used to being around renunciates and contemplatives that they would give me that space in a way that uh, was also very deeply moving because they were reading signs almost better than I could myself. And you were physically exhausted a lot. You were putting a lot of miles on every day and um, sometimes were experiencing gastric distress from something you ate. Or, and 
you were taken care of at, at those points. People supported you in, in your need for rest or healing. I had the most amazing experience at the beginning of the trip. I had many amazing experiences, but when I first started out, I really wasn't used to the terrain at all. It's like a desert. It's very, very high. The base of the valley, the floor of the valley where the rivers run through is about 9,000 feet above sea level. So you're already quite high up. And then you go up and down and up and down from there. So you're crossing the mouths of glaciers or you're walking up for a day and a half over a very high peak, you know, sometimes up to 16,000 feet above sea level. And when I first started out, it was hard for me to read the terrain. I had this old Indian army map that was this big sort of three foot sheet of paper that I would fold up with little dashed lines for footpaths and little concentric circles so you could sort of read the elevation. But let's face it, it wasn't Google Earth. And you couldn't see very clearly where you were going. And I meandered a lot of times. I followed yak paths thinking they were footpaths and ended up, you know, at some cliff and had to backtrack. And at the beginning, I also, as you described, I had stayed at a little truck stop where the bus left me off and like any truck stop in the world, let's just say it wasn't the cleanest. And I ended up with some kind of stomach bug and in the middle of nowhere, I came upon this group of men in a tent that was made out of a parachute with Japanese writing on it. My Zanskari was not very good. I spoke a little Hindi, a little Urdu and a little bit of Tibetan and I was trying to learn as much Sanskari as I could every day. And they invited me in and they told me that, that they were traveling, they were escorting, they were the attendants for this very high, highly realized Lama. And that this Lama was both a doctor, a Tibetan doctor, and had also been teaching in LA. So here I am in the middle of Zanskar, in the middle of nowhere, sick and lo and behold, there's this magical tent that appears out of nowhere with a bunch of men in it where I felt completely safe. They invited me in and they gave me tea and they told me to take a nap. And it was like some kind of apparition. And of course, I thought it was my language that I just wasn't understanding them. But when I woke up, the Lama took out his prayer books. He said some in Tibetan medicine, their he, their healings are both prayer oriented and medicinal. And he did some prayers over me, he took my pulses like they do in acupuncture. Uh, he gave me some pills, these ground herbs and minerals and all kinds of, I don't know what's in them. They're, they don't taste very good. And you drink them with hot water. And you know, they proceeded to tell me different stories. Um, I just assumed that I didn't understand at all what was going on. And a few years later, I showed some photographs of my time there uh, at Deer Park Monastery in, in outside of Madison, Wisconsin, where Geshe Sopa, who was a great Lama and taught at University of Wisconsin and where the Dalai Lama had come. So I showed these photographs to some students there. And they recognized this Lama and they said, 
oh, he's a really, really well-known llama. You're so fortunate to have met him. I got to see him in LA a few years ago. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, you just in Zanskar at the top of the world, you just never know what's going to happen. You, for most of the time, were traveling from spot to spot. You you would pick out maybe the destination you thought you could get to, but you were alone. You were alone on the trail and um, reflective and observing the skies and light and stars and colors of the rock. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that solitude that you experienced when you were alone on this journey? I really loved being on meditation retreats because of the solitude, because you're really left with your own mind. And you've got the theory of practices of how to deal with difficult mental states. But when it's just you and you, that's where the rubber meets the road. And when you're walking, and when I was walking in Zanskar, what I really felt was that the whole time I was there, I was in deep practice where I could see that some days were hard, some days were easy, but the hardness and easiness had a lot more to do with my relationship to my thoughts than the objective terrain. So maybe it was a really hard day and my muscles were aching and it was cold or it was hot or I was thirsty or I was hungry or it was hard to find any kindling to get, you know, a fire going to make some tea at that elevation. And, but if I was feeling very exuberant and positive and committed and aspirational, all of those challenges were just taken in stride. They were part of the challenge. And if I was feeling filled with self-doubt and wondering if I should be doing this at all, and why was I there in the middle of nowhere, and what did I think I could possibly learn on my own, and I didn't really understand anything about meditation, so pretending to use what I had just been introduced to to try to sort my way through the quagmire of the mind was useless anyway. And as I was filled with those thoughts of self-doubt, which we all, you know, most of us experience at some point or another, and some of us are more plagued by it than others, I would find that, of course, all kinds of bad things would happen. I would find it really hard to get to my destination. I wouldn't find a, a, a suitable spot to camp. I would trip and fall, or I would get scared by something, just spooked. And, and so it, I really started to see, because you go day after day after day, and, and you're just there with rocks and snow and river and sky and clouds, a few birds, a few marmots, there's not that much you see. And occasionally a village of 15 houses or so, all made out of the same materials. So it's very, it's very monochromatic. And then the fluctuations of emotion you start to see are really constructed. And then you start to see, oh, well, if I can not react so strongly to my ephemeral moods that are coming and going like the clouds, 
then my emotional system won't be bounced so high or so low. And I'll be able to maintain a sense of stability and centeredness and focus and direction and purposefulness that will carry me through whatever challenges there are. That was what I set out to do. And that was how I used that time on my own. Sometimes we're really extraordinarily uh, filled with love and bliss and illumination. And some were quite the opposite, but both, both sides of the coin taught me a lot about the nature of mind. And for much of the journey, as we're just talking about, you were traveling on your own. But for a while, you travel with a, a fellow trucker, Roger. And I'm wondering how that affected your contemplation, your mood, your experience on the trail. Well, you have to remember I was 21 and I was a young woman on my own with a 21-year-old's brain, assuming that I could do anything. (laughs) Of course, you know, as we mature, we realize that we have limits and we're a little bit more thoughtful about our opinions about things. So I met this trekker who was from Switzerland, he was quite the opposite of myself. I went to India with a very, very small amount of money that I wanted to stretch for as long as possible. And he was there, he was a computer scientist on his vacation, paid vacation for six weeks, you know, traveling to Zanskar with his, his perfect hiking boots and his, you know, all of his gear. He was actually a really, really nice guy. But my 21-year-old self had a lot of uh, opinions and judgments. And what I found traveling with him was I kept realizing, because I would find myself being very, in my mind, uh, less than gracious. And I just saw, he was, he, he was like a mirror for all my opinionated self and uh, judgmental self. And it was a really good time to because because I wanted to assume that I was more Zanskari than I was American and of course when I was with another Westerner Western European I realized no I'm much more Western (laughs) than I am Zanskari and all the things that I have questions about with our consumerist culture I had to see were very much embedded in me so it was a it was an interesting time and it was also a really good time. We had some, some wonderful discussions together. He was, he was a very quiet soul. So we often walked most of the day in silence. And then we would talk about philosophical things at night. And we also encountered a few really challenging points yes. um, during the time we walked together. And I was very grateful to have somebody with me at those times, um, One was an encounter with, it really felt like um, black magic, even though I'm not superstitious in that way, but there 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 was one place we camped on a glacier with some really creepy herdsmen and howling winds and spooky sounds. And we both woke up at three in the morning and we just waited for the peak of sun over the mountains and we just got out of there as quickly as possible. Uh, so that was, uh, we were really glad to have each other <laughs> that, 
that particular time. And it seems like there was a big contrast between his boots and the shoes that you were wearing that maybe were just a form of tennis shoe or athletic shoe that wasn't even firmly held together. And yet you're doing all this trekking on on those shoes. And when you arrive in a place called Lingshet, after a night's stay there, Roger decides that he wants to keep going and he moves on, but you want to stay. And so I wonder if you can talk about that experience at the Lingshet Gampa, which um, you describe in the book so colorfully, and it, it just was, um, for me, a high point in the book, your experience there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm. I was very drawn to the region because of the Buddhism more than the mountains. I love the mountains, and that's why I wanted to go and see them. But I was really drawn by the Buddhism and the retreat and being in monasteries around people who, even if I didn't understand what they were learning, I could absorb their quality of practice, their quality of prayer, their ritual. And Lingshak Gompa is a beautiful monastery of about sort of a hundred buildings. They're built right on a cliff. So from a distance, it, it looks like a wasp's nest with these little cells. And when you get closer, you realize that it, it, there's just enough gradient to fit some houses or rooms for the monks there. It's a very large monastery for the region. I arrived there uh, at the time of a huge summer uh, festival, prayer festival. I, I never was sure what the festival was, but the entire village, not only in that area, but all the villagers around there come for several days. And there are prayers and there are visiting lamas from different monasteries. And they go from morning to night. They have instruments, horns and drums and conch shells. And they have, you know, all kinds of elaborate different uh, monks robes and hats uh, that they go through through this process of prayer and meditation and i just happened to arrive on the right day <laughs> not not by any planning of my own but uh, it worked out really well and so i was able to be everyone everyone comes in as close as possible to the main prayer room in the monastery and lines the halls and uh, the villagers make offerings to the monks in the monastery of food and tea and yak butter. And so there's this constant flow of food where the, the young novice monks are coming around and filling everyone's cup with salt butter tea and pouring this dried barley flour into sacks for the villagers. So the villagers come and donate and the monastery in turn donates it back to everybody. So everyone can stay um, refreshed during these long hours of puja. And then in the evening, when I, I was there on the last day in the evening, the monks went back to their monk cells and all the villagers collected on this incredible flat sort of stage overlooking these vibrant green fields of early barley shoots 
and the area is ringed by these jagged sawtooth mountains and you know, the sun set over one ridge and then the mountains turned black and then the stars came out. You could see just for miles and miles and the stars came out brighter and brighter and there were folk dances all night and everyone was drinking uh, malted barley beer called Chang. And so everyone's getting a little tipsy and dancing and singing and the children are there and the teenagers are sneaking off to snuggle around the boulders, just like teenagers anywhere will do. And everyone is in their beautiful finery with all of their uh, headdresses filled with large turquoise stones and seed pearls and coral. And it was just a magical, magical time. We're rapidly running out of time, but I, I feel like we need to also talk about, you know, as your your journey comes to an end and you start encountering Westerners and and their habits and you have to get on a, a bus and and your, your reflection kind of changes then and and I guess I'm wondering how did you move out of that um, incredible experience into well essentially the rest of your life I think the lessons that I learned, about the nature of mind that we were talking about earlier were really put to the test at that point. And the way I like to describe it is that a little glimpse of infinity is still infinite. So you don't need to hold on to the desire to have more illuminating experiences, one more mountain to climb, one more beautiful vista to drink in, one more wonderful time with beautiful people. Once you've had that experience, that insight, that knowing becomes part of you. And then you deal with the ups and downs of the mind that will come or the ups and downs of your experience, but you don't need to relive what's already become a part of you, what you've already seen. And that was the challenge as I came out. It was sort of the test of the insights that I had had. And it was something that I was very determined. I was not going to go back because I felt that to honor the kindness that I'd been given and the, the extraordinary privilege and opportunity to be in Zanskar when I was and to have such a safe passage and to have been witness to so many extraordinary natural phenomena and human phenomena, I felt like I had to do it justice by not grasping after more. And that made it easier to look at the sort of cramps, you know, like it's like a deep sea diver, you know, coming up too soon, he gets some cramps. And it was a little bit like that. And I had to take it slow, but I really wanted to honor what I had learned. And I feel that being able to do that then is what also stayed with me over the years that I still spent in Asia studying and practicing. And then the years that I spent in America doing more philosophical research and writing and 
exploring and teaching. And now with the nonprofit that I run, which brings meditation, mindfulness, and systems thinking into the high schools in Philadelphia, where I've worked myself and my team have worked with 17,000 students since uh, 2014, who have experienced a lot of really, really difficult situations. And so being able to hold true to what I discovered and what I experienced, what I realized has given me a lot of momentum and inspiration and faith and positivity, especially now uh, in the midst of living in uh, one of America's cities that is showing all the, the cracks and decay uh, that is so much of uh, westernized urban life right now. Yes, yes. Amy Edelstein, Adventure in Sanskar, A Young Woman's Solitary Journey to Reach Physical and Metaphysical Heights. I feel like I could talk to you about this book for a while. I so enjoyed reading it. And I thank you for talking with me today. Thank you so much. It was a total pleasure. Amy Edelstein. We'll take a short break before talking with Kathleen Stone on her book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. Women are still having to push and assert our rights to work, live, and have ultimate agency over our own lives. This was even more pronounced in the mid-20th century. Kathleen Courtney Stone profiles seven women who defied convention and expectation to succeed in careers that were still largely in the narrow purview of men. Stone herself spent many years as a lawyer, and the subjects of the book include a physicist, intelligence officer, artist, and judge. Here's our conversation together. They Call Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. Kathleen Courtney Stone, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. In the book, you profile seven women who have achieved something notable in their careers, but also who came of age during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and onward, and in some cases worked through until quite recently. Yes. So they are the generation of our mothers and, and grandmothers, and they attained their professional achievements at a time when women were not exactly encouraged to go to college, let alone have successful careers, let alone in medicine and physics. And you have had a successful career in the legal profession. So what 
initially drew you to wanting to discover the sort of ambition these women manifested and just what motivated them? And maybe in the process, what has motivated you? I write in the introduction about myself as a young girl around age eight, being curious about the world around me and trying to you know, make sense of what possibilities might lie ahead for myself. I think that's probably a pretty universal thing that kids do. But one thing that I remember, and I, this is the specific memory I write about, is sitting on the living room floor in our, my family's house, pulling books off the bookshelf. And one of the books I pull off is my father's yearbook from law school. He graduated in 1950. And I look first at his picture, of course. Um, and then I flip through all the pictures of students. And, it, and I realized that there are not many women Um, It's mostly white, mostly men, but there are a few women and I'm intrigued by them because I don't know any women at that point in my life who are lawyers. And so I realize that these women have done something different and I'm just fascinated. Who are they? Why did they do this? What are they like? And I sort of fantasize about them without knowing really any facts about them other than their names and what they look like in the pictures. And that was a feeling that I tapped into many years later when I was late in my own career as a lawyer, was wanting to find out about that generation of women when it was so unusual for women to go to law school, what it was like and what drove them to do it. And I was probably in my late 50s when I decided to find out by talking to some of the women, and not just lawyers, of course, but women who were in a variety of professions when it was highly unusual for women to do that. So that was my own idiosyncratic approach to writing this book. I was really tapping into that childhood curiosity. Tell us how you identified the women you wanted to interview and profile. And when did you know you had enough for a book? I started reading books about women's history. And that was not a subject I'd ever studied before. Um, When I was in college, women's history classes were just starting and I didn't take one. So I was trying to play catch up somewhat and read a lot about women's history as an academic subject. Of course, I had lived through part of it in my own life. Um, I went to law school in the 1970s in what was what is often called the second wave of feminism. So I had my own sort of firsthand experience about that. But going back further in history, I tried to get a general idea of the of the landscape. And as I did that, I, I found a really a, a fact that really intrigued me. And I realized that when these women came of age and began their careers in male-dominated professions, the growth curve of women in professional work was flat. And it was flat for 50 years from essentially 1920, when the 19th Amendment passed, until 1970. There were lots more women went into the workforce during that time, but they went into fields that were considered, and I'm using air quotes, appropriate for women. They didn't typically go into careers like medicine, law, and science. So when I read that statistic, I realized that what I had been sort of wondering about when I was an eight-year-old girl looking at my father's law school yearbook, I I really, I was sort of onto something. And that, in a way, all of that helped me narrow the kinds of women that I wanted to talk to. I became pretty much clearer that I wanted to talk to women who had been in these professional fields. 
um, because I realized how unusual they were. The statistics revealed that to me. I compiled lists of possibilities. I did a lot of internet research and I found lists of women who had done different kinds of things. I also had an, I had an eye out for diversity of the kinds of jobs they had had. And of course, I was also interested in racial and ethnic diversity. And I was talking to women who were in their 80s and 90s. And the age alone, of course, narrowed things a little bit. Some women who I might otherwise have talked to had passed away or were otherwise not available to talk to. And a couple of women responded to an email or a letter from me out of the blue. Other times um, I used my personal network and that really was invaluable to me was people making introductions for me. It happened all the time. People would ask me what I was working on and I would tell them and then they'd say, oh, you got to talk to so-and-so. And when they would sometimes make an introduction, um, that would really help open the door. The, the seven I chose ultimately had stellar careers, really interesting lives. They gave good interviews where we were a, really able to engage in a conversation and I felt like that these particular ones created a narrative arc in a sense of showing the social history of what had gone on in the United States in this 50 year plateau period that I mentioned from essentially 1920 to 1970. They were essentially contemporaries, but because of the way their lives had played out, each life revealed something about the progress of women during that 50 year period. So that's how I ended up with this particular seven. I noticed some interesting threads across their lives. It seemed that many expressed an early interest in books and reading and music and art, and I would include you in that bunch too. And so that stood out to me, that even if they became a physicist, there was still this foundation of interest in learning and expressing. And I wonder if you noticed that too. That is absolutely the case. Um, they all, let me retract what I was about to say. I was about to say they all came from homes where reading and education was encouraged. That's not entirely the case. Some, in at least one example, reading for or in education for a young girl was not encouraged. Um, that was thought that maybe she would scare away the boys. Right. Um, but she was determined to read. She loved reading. Um, she told me that she used to walk to the public library in New York City. And that was the way she safeguarded her intellect was to be able to go read. All of these women were one way or another drawn to reading a life, somewhat of an, an intellectual life. And in many of them, you're absolutely right that music or art was part, part of their childhood experience as well. Mildred Dresselhaus, who became a physicist and the first female tenured professor at MIT, did not grow up in a household with, her parents were not well-educated. Um, there was no money. They probably didn't have books on the shelf, but she went to a settlement house that had a music school and she was uh, started taking violin lessons very young. And that music school led to many opportunities for her, but music became a real through line in her life. She played probably until close to the time of her death. 
Um, she was in a number of chamber ensembles, many of them based at MIT. Um, yes. Professors <laughs> at MIT typically have a lab. And one particular professor asked her to join the ensemble, the chamber ensemble that he had put together for his lab. And that became a connection for her into the academic life there. You know, music in that sense had a of a practical effect in her profession. It's a little bit more amorphous, but I think that, as you put it, the idea of expression, whether it's through art or music, was an experience that most of these women had. And I think it served them well in keeping their minds open and a fresh approach. I, I don't know that I can explain specifically how that worked, but I do I did notice it as I was going through the interviews, and I absolutely think that it made a difference for these women. I also noticed that, and, and for our listeners and readers, we should say that though these women were noted and recognized, we wouldn't call them famous or household names, maybe in certain communities they are, but one thing that I also noticed that they had in common was a sense of humility, or that's something I perceived, that they did the work, and that doing the work was what was important, and they didn't necessarily need to brag about it, or they didn't need to be famous or can you talk a little bit about that? And, and, and what, I mean, was that your experience when, when you spoke with them? Yes, it absolutely was. To pick up on your point that they're not famous in any household name kind of way, that is true. And that was by design. I was interested in women who had achieved significant professional success, but I didn't want to sort of be distracted or to have readers be distracted by one or two famous names. And I think some who are famous have already gotten enough ink in a way. And so I was interested in sort of going below the radar to find out what had made these women tick. So that, that was intentional. And to your point about humility, I would say yes. This particular set of women, particularly at the time in their life when I interviewed them, had a fair degree of self-confidence. They had all achieved and, you know, whatever uncertainties they might've had when they were 20 had long since dissipated. These women were not after fame or fortune. They had talents, they had interests, they were motivated, but as you put it, they were motivated to do the work. For them, I think a fully rounded life was going to include a way to use their interests and their talents in the workplace. So they, they were humble in that sense and that, that they did not meet the classic definition of ambition. Although I use ambition quite purposely in the subtitle of the book, I'm hoping to maybe spark a conversation about how to redefine the word. Um, the other thing I would say about these women and whether they were humble or not, is that most of them one way or another worked in service to others. You know, their prim primary ambition was to use their own talents, but they did it, almost all of them, I think, in a way that affected and served others. Um, that is certainly true for the two who were doctors. 
the one who um, became a federal judge. You know, every day she has people in her courtroom and she's thinking about how justice will serve them. One was a social worker and uh, was executive director of a large social service agency in Boston and became a prominent member of the philanthropic community in the region. She certainly um, was thinking about how to serve others. And even Mildred Dresselhaus, who I mentioned earlier, the scientist at MIT, when I talked to her, she was very keen to point out how scientific discovery had in, you know, enhanced people's lives, both in terms of the product it's, that would eventuate from a discovery and also from uh, creating just a more prosperous society. Um, so all of, I think all of them had other people on their minds as well. So I do think that that fits with your initial point about them being humble. They had other, they weren't thinking only about themselves. You structure the book with chapters on these seven women, but you have these intermezzos that are your reflections on your own life. And you reflect upon the influence of your own parents in your life. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because even within the chapters, you infuse some of your own reflections. And I'm wondering what you learned about yourself. I guess I would have said easily without even having started this book that I knew that my parents were a big influence for me. And clearly my father was, he was the lawyer. I became a lawyer, you know, temperamentally, I think he and I were similar. Um, Once I was in law school, we would talk about law probably to the boredom of everybody else, but he and I had a great affinity But what I discovered in writing the book and thinking back on my own life experiences was what was less obvious to me at the time, but was clearly as important was my mother's influence. Um, She set a lot of standards of how all the three, three children were supposed to act. And she was very clear that I was going to go to college. I was going to go to a four year college. She had gone to a two year college. I don't remember her saying I should or shouldn't have a career, but it was just sort of assumed that I would, I think. Um, And she was fully behind that. And she just, she guided me a lot. I I became an art history major in college, thinking I actually might work in art history, which I didn't end up doing. But partly that was an influence of my mother. She would, when I was very young, she would take me to art museums. I think she saw that I liked it. And so we went back for more. She then audited classes at Wellesley College um, in art history, and she would tell me about what she was learning in her classes. And um, I think without ever pushing me to be an art history major, she encouraged me or she inspired me. So there were a lot of ways that my mother inspired and encouraged me that I came to appreciate much more fully in the process of writing the book and looking back on my own life. Maybe it was inevitable when I was talking to these seven women about their lives, that it would cause me to reflect about things in my own life, and particularly about how I decided to become a lawyer, because we, you know, our focus was really on how women had gotten started on those professional paths. But I didn't think I was going to write about it, even though it was in my head. Um, I start, my very earliest drafts were very distanced, third party, traditional, uh, third person rather, 
traditional biographical writing. It, but it was really when I, I went to Bennington College to get my Master of Fine Arts as, as part of the process of writing the book. And there, uh, both te teachers encouraged me to write more personally. And you know, we had little assignments we had to do, and they often encouraged me to do something in a personal vein. But it was really my fellow students um, who we would workshop each other's pieces, um, who encouraged me to think of myself as almost as a navigator, to think of myself as taking the reader by the hand and helping the reader work through the material that I was writing about the other women and give them my slant. Um, and because I had worked so many years as a lawyer, um, I had some basis to, to have opinions about what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated profession. So it really took the other students to get me to see myself in that role and then to write about it. Um, so I, I did, so I did it in two ways, as you, as you said, one is in the inter, in the intermezzos where I give a little anecdote or incident that occurred in my own life that I think is relevant <clears throat> to the women that I'm writing about, but also in the chapters about the women themselves, where I may show the reader what it was like for me to drive to the house for the interview and what the house looked like, or with the nature of our conversation, or so, some other detail that fleshed out the interview scene a little bit. Um, so I didn't want to make it, it's not at all a memoir, and I didn't set out to make it a memoir, um, but it really through the persuasion of my colleagues at Bennington, <clears throat> I decided to um, stray from the typical bi biography writing and make it a little more personal. And it warmed up the biographical sketches. It created an involvement that I think readers can relate with then. Well, you have some really good stories here. And there's so much more we could talk about. We're running out of time. And um, I wonder what is the message maybe you want to leave us with today, no matter our age or pursuit. Well, I guess I'd say a couple of things. One is I think what mattered to these women was, and I hope it matters to younger women today, is getting an education. And whether it's in medical school or truck driving school or whatever, whatever you want, you, you follow that path to get your education. And you do it so that you will have agency over your life. Um, but I think all these women felt agency over their lives. And I think that's a tremendously empowering and satisfying feeling to have that. I would also say as a sort of a conclusion is that I do think progress has been made. I think women today feel freer to follow their interests and talents than was the case 50 or 70 years ago. Certainly hurdles remain but I think the fact that we have made progress is a sign that more can still be made. And I would also add a quote from Dr. Muriel Petioni, um, who's one of the women in the book. She was a physician in Harlem. And she said that every child needs someone to say, you can do great things. The child is lucky when the person saying that is a parent, but others can also fill that role. Um, so I think that feeling of encouragement and building self-confidence is incredibly important. 
Among the hurdles that I think are left has to do with family life. If you have two working parents or partners, who's taking care of the household and the children? And I think that there's still a lot of um, conversations that have to happen on a personal level as to how those things are going to be worked out. And I don't mean just who washed the dishes last night or tonight, but over the larger scale, are, are both parents willing to take a major role and share equally in pick up after school, going to the dance recital, whatever it is. I think that's where a lot of um, conversations have to happen between couples and where institutional employers have to understand that they have to accommodate those kinds of um, personal decisions. On, on They can't just assume that the man's always going to be in the office. They should assume that he will at least half the time be home taking care of the kids. Kathleen Stone, thank you for joining us today with your book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. Thank you. It's been a delight to talk to you. Kathleen Courtney Stone. Earlier, I spoke with Amy Edelstein with her book, Adventure in Zanskar. I spoke with Kathleen and Amy for a bit longer than we had time for today. Hear my full conversation with both authors on our podcast. You can find us at krcb.org, follow a Novel Ideas program or podcast links, or find us on iTunes. Thanks for listening today. I am Suzanne Lang and have production assistance from James Morey, Mark Prell, and Wendy Nicholson. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. Thank you for listening. It's a novel idea.